Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today's guest we have from Germany, Sarah Scazzaro, one of our coaches. Hello, Sarah. If you would like to introduce yourself to our listeners. Yeah, I'm actually recently relocated to Illinois. Oh, Illinois. Oh, you're back from Germany. Purple. Yeah, I just moved back in the past couple of weeks. I, I know it's been it was kind of like stealth mode. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. we moved back out here recently. So I'm just adjusting to being back in the muggy Midwest. Okay. Um, right. But yeah, so I'm a run coach and an ultra runner and a stick mobility coach amongst other things. And uh, yeah, I like to run far, <laughs> like far, far, <laughs> like hundred miles far. Okay. How many r- miles are you running on a daily basis? Depends on where I'm at in my training cycle. So okay. where, you know, like what phase I'm in. So that could be anywhere from Long runs, 30 plus miles, weekly runs, anywhere from five to 15 miles during my weekly runs. Right now I'm averaging about five to eight during the week and just like eight to 12 on my weekend long run because I'm not really in the meat of a, a, a buildup for anything right now. What mileages do you run for your ultra events or do you mix it up? I mix it up. My, so my favorite distance is the 50 miler. Yeah. I feel like it provides like the best mix of speed, endurance, and strategy, and you can do it in a day. So you can wake up and then go to bed in the same day. (laughs) Uh, I know. Um, But I've done anything from a, so an ultra marathon is anything over a marathon distance. Mm -hmm. So 50K, 100K, 50 miler, 100 miler. And they even go into 200 and 240 miles. Oh, wow. But yeah, that's kind of the new thing. But the longest I've done is 100 miles. But my favorite is the 50. Well, we know someone that's done, you know, a couple hundred mile yeah. events yeah. and she's, she's won a couple of them yeah. um, up in Tahoe. So how, how long does it take you to run a hundred miles? Me personally? Yeah. I am not I mean, fast. Okay. I'm not winning. So I'm more of a tiptoe through the tulips kind of runner. Lots to take pictures. So depending, it depends on the course. So you could get a really gnarly course that could take you 30 hours. And then you could get a really fluid course with not a lot of vert gain that you can do. And for some people, sub 24, I'm about that 25 hour, just missing that 24 hour. Yeah. I was going to say vertical may play such a different, such a huge impact on that. Yeah. Such a difference. Cause you get, you get hundred milers that are literally done on a track just oh. round and round. Yeah. Damn. Yep. Then you get some that are done on like towpath, like the tunnel Hill. It's more of a, a flatter course. And then you get ones that are in the Swiss Alps and in the San Juans yeah. in Colorado. So you can't compare them at all, but my favorite race is in Colorado, but that was, it's actually incidentally, my favorite distance is a 50, but my favorite race is the hundred K that I've done. Well, how recent is the 200 K been? introduced the 200 miler and the 240 oh, two mile? yeah, 240 oh, miles Jesus. yeah it's <laughs> it's not as it's it's getting a lot more traction but it's actually not that new i mean it's been several years now that oh, people have been okay. doing them mm-hmm. there's one in moab there's tahoe there's quite a few different locations so yeah it's, it's not necessarily a new thing Damn, they pick the high elevations to do the 240 mile why would you too. have it be easy <laughs> neil <laughs> yeah yeah so what type of support system do you have during the race for that? So depending on the race, you can have some races allow you to be like, have fully stocked aid stations. Most do have fully stocked aid stations, um, crew and pacers. And there's a difference mm-hmm. between the, the two. And then some are fully like self-supported. So you have to have, you carry everything on you that you're going to need oh, damn. or place your own drop bags. So you don't have someone coming out to meet you, to help you and give you a pat on the back. I do the ones where I get to like have a friend join me at mile 50 and we run together and it's, that's called a pacer. So okay. a pacer isn't supposed to do anything for you in terms of what's called muling. They can't carry anything for you. They're not supposed uh, to, but they can be basically, it's a safety thing, a, a companionship, just having somebody out there with you. You like draft off of them too. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I have a cycling background too. So you get really tucked really low. Yeah. <laughs> you draft off of them. <laughs> I mean, that'll shave a good half second a minute. Yeah. Off. <laughs> Actually, it's better that they're in front sometimes because by the time someone catches up with you at that point in the race, you're not smelling too fresh. So probably uh, best. <laughs> so what's, what's the most amount of weight that you can carry on you where, you know, it doesn't affect your running too much? I think, yeah, that's a good question. I think that's pretty dependent on the individual, you know, someone that's you, you know, trains the specificity. So an event where you're going to have to carry like all your own gear, you're going to need to be training 
with your packs loaded and and things like that. Most people that you figure even just a hundred miler with a typical running pack with a bladder, potentially a full one and a half to two liter bladder of water, and then any other gear they might have, it could be eight to 10 pounds sometimes oh, plus. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Your traps are a little sore by the end sometimes. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. Yeah, because yeah. the, the, you know, the desk yeah, can hit you, right? Put, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. People get tired and form starts to break. And I, I try to work on that. But Training regimen-wise, what's typically your strategies as far as how to retain the muscle mass yeah. right, and stay strong? So for me, I'm I'm one of the the runners and run coaches that is a big proponent of strength training. So you guys have probably noticed that from mm-hmm. my social. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah. a lot of yeah. a lot of runners don't like to prioritize it. I think that's changing, which is nice. A lot of okay. runners see the value in it, especially ultra runners. So I for me, off season is which so like no build up to a race, six to nine months out of a race, I'm doing three three days a week. And then as I get closer to an event, I try to still maintain two days a week. And just the focus, like the reps and volume and the loading changes mm-hmm. with you know my exercise selection and all of that, but I still make it a priority to still lift because I notice it. I notice a big difference when I don't incorporate strength training. Because that's a big thing that we always talk about is how runners kind of have a, this stigma that they don't want to lift. Yeah. What would be a main reason why they just, why are they kind of offset by that? Yeah, I would say the biggest reason I get from athletes that I talk to is that they are very limited time. They have families, they have Mm. jobs, and they only get so much time to train. And so they want to run. If I only have 90 minutes in a day, I want to be running. I don't want to be budgeting my training time for something else. So that's one argument. I try to balance that out with, but 20 to 30 minutes of strength can save you a lot of problems down the line. So Mm -hmm. in fact, it's a good strategy, kind of a preventive type of thing. And then some people, I don't agree with this, but they think they, they don't like their body. They feel like they get bulkier and heavier when they feel heavier, not necessarily a scale sensation, but Mm -hmm. they don't like their way their body feels when they lift. That's, Mm. and then I'll tell some, I usually will counter that with, well, maybe you're not doing the right kind of loading in the right season of your sport, you know? So it's not the time to be doing the type of lifting that would make you feel that way. Yeah. So I think sometimes it comes from a background of of not understanding the principles of strength training and how it can relate to their running. Mm -hmm. And then maybe having a background of doing it the wrong way for that season of their training, not necessarily the wrong way, but if they're taking something they did in say high school football and trying to apply it to three months out from their hundred miler, it won't necessarily be a good match there. It seems like it'd be something that you would specifically want to seek out a coach who actually does distance running yet still incorporates strength training, not just going to any trainer that you would just find on the street, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with that completely. And um, I think that the benefit of that is that you get someone that understands both aspects of the sport. Mm-hmm. So it's somebody who I run, I run ultras. I understand the demands of that versus, you know, somebody who, for instance, I have a recent athlete who has worked with a personal trainer who doesn't have any experience with with mm-hmm. running, distance running. And so they're trying to throw all this explosive like CrossFit work at them. Oh. And they're like, yeah, but this isn't working. I'm not getting my running. And they're like, well, it's like they don't, it's not their scope. They don't understand how you can balance and marry those two together. And so I think that's, you know, it's knowing kind of where your strengths are. And I think the fact that I can meld both of those Mm -hmm. is, is one thing I'm very proud of. So when you're planning your, you know, your training cycles here, are you writing out a big plan for you know, to get ready for the race as far as your, your running regimen and then, and then writing out a training plan for, for your strength training along yes. with it. Yes. Yep. Yep. So that they're periodized to work together. So I map out for myself or an athlete, if I know, depending on when I get someone, you know, that sometimes you get people like my race is in two months help. And then some yeah. people are literally my dream race is a year away. Oh, what do I gotcha. like? How do I start now? Mm-hmm. And so the phases of when we can focus on different aspects of strength and then how it evolves with running. And then also the individuality of a runner who's got really tight or weak hips or someone Mm -hmm. who tends to not have power, you know, for their stride or climbing mountains. So then what, what do they need specifically? Certain principles are good. I hate to paint a big, you know, with a broad brush, but certain Mm -hmm. principles are just good for most runners, but then you dial it in for each individual. Yeah. Case by case for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess as for like the broad principles, would you say that, you know, early on in your running cycle, would you say a little more volume with strength training? And then as 
as that progresses into higher volume running, you start to go more low volume, maybe a little heavier with strength training or? It kind of inverse. So the way I approach it is earlier in the season, you can focus on more plyometrics, heavier weight. You can really kind of get into it. As you focus and as your run volume starts to increase, and we're talking people running 10 to 20 hours a week, you know, prepping for a hundred, the fatigue that's going to set in from doing that really heavy, like five by five, it's volume is low, but the demands are high. So then we start to focus on more specialization work. So for instance, casual plug, doing like stick mobility work and stuff. That's Mm -hmm. not going to be very fatiguing in the sense that it's not demanding the load of the Mm -hmm. muscle, but they're working on the principles and and stabilization and isometric holds and things so that you're not throwing a bunch of weight on your back and then heavy squatting. And so then your legs are completely dead Mm -hmm. for, you know, your Saturday long run. Well, I think that's, uh, is probably a common mistake is, and maybe a big reason why runners don't want to work out is because I think most trainers just overload them with way too much weight, right? Yeah. Yeah. And not enough like practical core, you know, like Mm -hmm. a bunch of setups isn't going to help you. I mean, you're not doing setups when you're running. (laughs) Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) And, and just overdoing it on like just crushing the legs. It's like, it's like doing a bodybuilding type training cycle for a Mm. runner. It's just, not a good fit and, and not targeting specific areas of the upper body that become very weak as form, you know, formal break, people get tired, the upper back, you know, things like that. We tend to hunch and round and get tired. Mm -hmm. So just trying to open up the chest and strengthen the back and get the core, all of those things that traditional training can do, but it's not always emphasized. It's more of a people sometimes either do a performance or an aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And with the running, I tell people like how I program for you as a runner is different than someone who's coming to me for purely like a fat loss goal. The yeah. exercises may not be, you know, a squat is a squat, mm-hmm. but where I put it in your program and the reps and sets involved and where it's placed in relationship to your runs and things like that would probably look different. It should exactly. look different. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, it should look yeah, different. Huh? Yeah, should look different. Is there a lot of single leg training in your programming or is it mostly bilateral? Um, it's single leg. So I do both, you know, okay. but I do really focus on single leg because running is a repetitive single leg exercise. Mm-hmm. And we always have, well, I shouldn't say always, most of us have a discrepancy in strength and power between our limbs. So mm-hmm. if we're always training bilateral, you're never helping to access and kind of assess and work on that weakness between the two. For instance, I had a massive knee injury many years ago. And to this day, Mm. you can visibly see the difference in my quads. My left Mm. leg is visibly smaller and it's weaker. And I I know my right compensates. So I I personally do a lot of single leg work because if Mm. I don't, my right leg is just like, I got this. Left leg, you're you're cool, you know? And so I really assess myself a lot. And it's funny because the one thing that I post, you know, when I post videos on Instagram, I'm constantly looking at them like with a coach's eye and I can Mm -hmm. see like, oh, look at what you did there with that. Like, look how you're compensating there. But it's important feedback for me because Mm -hmm. I can see those imbalances and those differences. And so that I'm allowed to work on them. What kind of knee injury did you have? I had a a medial tibia plateau fracture in 2002. So the medial part of my knee of Mm -hmm. my tibia crushed down a half inch. Oh, and I did that running because <laughs> wow. I'm talented. I was out for a run trying to, you know, training to qualify for Boston. And I, I was looking at a crosswalk and I stepped on a piece of cement that a tree root had grown underneath. And when I stepped down, it collapsed and my oh. foot came towards my face and my knee bent the, it hyperextended backwards and flipped over oh. in someone's lawn with the sprinklers going on me. <laughs> it was very movie-esque. I was on bedpan bed rest for three months because they thought I had such a bad bruise of my femur. They thought they were going to have to replace the whole joint. So I couldn't even roll over for three months. And this was in the Sacramento heat of summer. Oh, snap. Yeah. So in my living room at my parents' house. So yeah. And I was told I'd never run again. And I'd always walk with a limp. And I didn't run for eight years. But oh, wow. But the cool thing about that is actually like one of those things that like, I would never want to have that happen again. If I could rewire time, I would not have gone for that run. Mm -hmm. However, that's what got me into strength training. That's what got me to Ah. pursue my master's in exercise science. That's what got me to be a personal trainer because I couldn't run. So I was like, well, how can I work with my body? What else can I do? Gotcha. And so this changed the complete, I liked working out back then, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I lifted, I ran, but it wasn't my calling. 
And then all of a sudden it was like, wow. And then when I did return to running, I credit that with my ability to do it in a more healthful way because my body was stronger. Amazing. Because we met originally through Chip. Yep. Morton. Yep. And And Kelly. Yeah, Chip and then Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as working with Chip, were you working on running mechanics or? No, with the guys, with the team, we were working on more restorative and injury prevention type work. So yeah. So mobility and stretches and footwork and ankle stuff and hips and knees and shoulders. And yeah, so that was, that was super fun. Do you think a lot of runners overstride when they run? Yes. Specifically going downhill is a big problem. Uh, Yeah. You see a lot of people reach out with that leg and it's just break, 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 break. You know, they overstride. They tend to, then it's like, oh, my hamstring or I got a knee issue. But yeah, I mean, there are those camps. I don't know if you're kind of the whole heel strike versus midfoot strike. Uh, yeah, we wanted to bring that up. So there we love, go. Yeah, we, we got to bring it up. Here I we mean, are. It's a big thing. Um, so, you know, back 10 years ago, it was very much natural running, midfoot running, midfoot running, getting mm-hmm. rid of the heavy stack. I used to work at a running shoe, shoe store. So getting rid of okay. that like maximal stack shoe and mm-hmm. going into mm-hmm. more minimal. Yeah. And then the pendulum swung the other way and it was hokas and thick sole shoes and, mm-hmm. you know, cushion, you know, max cushion. And, you know, I don't know about you guys, but the research I've been reading recently points to, I mean, obviously you don't want to be a heavy, heavy heel striker, especially going downhill. Mm -hmm. But sometimes what tends to happen, the more you mess with someone's gait, when they're not having any problems, you can start to create problems if you don't evaluate what's actually going on for them to be having that gait in the first place. Mm -hmm. So maybe they're landing that way because their hips are tight or whatever it is. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't address up the chain, then... Yeah, you can change. Now you're you're shortening your stride and your midfoot striking, but I see problems happen there too. So it's it's really you gotta assess where someone's at. And then I find one of the best ways to get someone if they're a really aggressive heel striker is to address their cadence. And I'm not one of those people that's married to the everybody should have 180, you know, cadence footsteps per minute. That's kind yeah. of a 90, 90 per foot. Because not everybody falls in that range, but if somebody has a very, very low cadence, they tend to be a heel striker. Oh, okay. So if you, not always, but if so, if you kind of get them to adjust a couple beats at a time and work on that and shorten those strides a little bit, they might have an easier transition. Trail running is a little different though than road running because the terrain varies so much. Yeah. The traditional heel striker versus midfoot striker doesn't always translate out there because you're going up rocks and down and over and lateral movements. And so you have a lot more versatility in using your body. Yeah. Cause yeah, just, sometimes like, you're landing on different parts of the right? foot. Yeah. 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 And that's where ankle mobility and ankle work and barefoot tra- training and single leg work comes into is so heavily valued because not only are you doing single leg repetitions over and over and over with running, you're doing it on unstable surfaces potentially. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and that's, what's interesting is because, I don't know if people take that time to step back and go, okay, cement road and then dirt, rocks, dirt, all sorts of different. It's right there. But do we actually take the time to step back and actually look at the differences and go, oh, well, that's like that won't transfer over to that as well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that I find too is most people just think, asphalt, ow, dirt, softer on my legs. So that feels better, which mm-hmm. yes, but then you have all the other things that you can be injured, that you can trip, you can twist mm-hmm. an ankle. Like you're less likely, although I say this, you're less likely to get hurt running on the roads when my biggest injuries have happened on the roads, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a piece of cement that was broken. So it wasn't difficult, <laughs> but yeah, no, they don't necessarily think like, maybe I should prep my body in a different way for this. And mm-hmm. that's why I like having a strong reactive core can have so much value out on the trail because you'll, we call little toe grabbers. You'll trip on a little root and you kind of catch yourself and just having that ability for your body to just work fluidly and keep you upright is, is so important. Would you recommend to, to the recreational or casual <laughs> runner to do both off-road and road, mix it up or from state of Yes. One? Yeah. So Obviously, specificity. If, if we're just talking someone who's a, like likes yeah. to run a couple days a week yeah. just for fun, I would just from a mental and physical 
it's just getting a little bit of diversity in your training. Mm-hmm. So you're out on the trails. It's pretty, you're in nature. You're not thinking about, man, this sucks. You know, I hate running, you know, people usually that hate running have never run trails. Even if it's around a dirt gravel path around a park, just get out, mm-hmm. get away from cars and buildings. And it just kind of, you use your body in a different way. I think you get more in tune with your mm-hmm. body, which then translates, I think, to being a more efficient runner on the road. Gotcha. Yeah. Because I know personally, I, to run on the road, mm, I, <laughs> I, I, mentally speaking, I, yeah. it's, it, to me, it's misery. Yeah. But yet I can go out on a trail and I'm much more engaged. Yes. Like mentally, I'm into it because it's because yeah. inter- I look at the the path that's in front of me and I see rocks, I see obstacles, and I like yeah. it's it's kind of like a game in a way, right? Like a video game, right? Yeah. You can yes. you see the obstacles ahead, and you can be your own little Mario, and mm-hmm. yeah, exactly that. And you're more, I think it's easier to tune out on the roads. And for some people, after a stressful day, they may need that. They mm. need to just be like, I need to run. I need to let off some steam. I don't need to think about, am I going to trip or fall? I just mm. want to run. You can be more engaged when you're outside mm. and yeah. more present. You have to be focused in the moment. You know, that rock, that root. Oh, look at the bird. Look at the tree, you know? Right. And it's just more Zen outside. Mm. Yeah. And you're using your body. If you're on a true trail, you're using your body in different ways. You're moving laterally more than you would on a road. You're picking your feet up to cover over a log or a mm-hmm. rock. So yeah. uh, there's less of that just singular repetitive motion that you get with road running. What about treadmill running? A lot of people like it. I mean, I, I, I think you see them at the gyms all the time. Yeah. I, they look miserable, so I don't really think they do like it. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Those people are masochists. It's a tool. It's right. a tool. So when I lived in North Dakota, because my husband's in the military mm-hmm. and we were so lucky be stationed in North Dakota for three years. <laughs> and uh, it's very flat there. And in the winter, okay. spoiler alert, it gets very cold. The- With the wind chill, our coldest winter was negative 60. Ooh. Yeah. And so it's, it's really just not safe to be outside. And the yeah. roads are icy oh, yeah. and the snow is yeah. banking. So that's actually when we bought our treadmill is when we lived in North Dakota. We'd, I'd okay. never owned one before then. And okay. I broke. I was like, yeah. I have things to train for. I can't even be outside moving. I, we lived in this tiny little apartment. I'm like, I need something. And I did several 22 milers on that treadmill that particular oh, wow. winter. Yeah. It was a way I could get some vert because also, you know, climbing because otherwise I had no way to climb and I was training for some Colorado races. Uh. So, yeah. So is it necessary? Depends on the person. If I have any other choice, it will always be outside. Unless right. it's unsafe in a health way to do so, or it's very flat and I need to do a mount, I need to do some climbing, then I'll hop on my treadmill and set it at an incline. Put on so, how did that transfer for you yeah. to the to the trail? You know, because on the treadmill you've got that belt and it's yeah. slightly helping you, right? You know, it's you set it to a speed, even though yeah. you still have to propel yourself. You, know, you but- land, you do land and propel differently on a treadmill because rather mm-hmm. than you moving over the ground, the ground is moving under you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it does change things slightly. I finished. I did fine. I mean, okay. the altitude was, I felt like my biggest limiter because I went from living North Dakota to 10,200 feet in Colorado. So mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I wasn't prepared physically, but my lungs were the big, <laughs> gotcha. the big focus. Okay. Yeah. And I've just always been, this is me personally, because I know this doesn't work for everybody. I call mm-hmm. it being naive or Pollyanna, but I'm just one of those people that if I set my mind to do something, I'm like, I'm going to make this work and I'm going to be racing in the mountains. So I'm going to make the best of what I can do with Mm -hmm. the tool that I have. Yeah. So I'm not podium, you know, getting on the podium, but I finished and I felt great. And yeah. So I made the best of what I could with what I had. Yeah. I think for me, I did mostly treadmill training for my first half marathon. Yeah. And when I got done with that, I was like, whoa, big mistake. Because my feet just weren't prepared for the asphalt. And I would say that's probably, that's actually a really good point. I would say transition from treadmill to concrete or asphalt is probably a harder landing, literally and figuratively, than treadmill to trail. Because trail's a little bit more buttery. I mean, we're talking, Mm -hmm. you know. Nice, not necessarily some of the trails some people run on and that races Mm -hmm. include where it's really lots of sharp rocks and shale and things like that. But Mm -hmm. a buttery single track is going to be a a little bit easier to adjust to than LA concrete 
Yeah, I was yeah. literally when I got done when I crossed the finish line, I was just like, please put I had to get Never my feet again. off the ground. I had to get my feet off the ground. Oh. I was just like, oh. And of course you park like freaking half a mile away <laughs> from the race. To. You're just like, I'm like, can I get a wheelchair? <laughs> yeah. So right there, you know, about halfway through the race is when I just went in my brain, I went, Yep, not smart just staying on a treadmill. Yeah. I run in the heat and humidity. It doesn't bother me. I actually okay. run really well in the heat and humidity. So right now mm. people are hating life and I'm like 90 degrees and 90% humidity. Yes. You know, I, I run my best actually in the heat. I don't like to live oh. in it, but I run really well in it. But I get athletes sometimes are like, oh, it's, it's just too hot. I have to, you know, they want to go on the treadmill all the time. And mm. fair enough on a really hot day, air conditioned fair gym, enough. I get it. But if your race is going to be an, like a hot race or it's going to be humid, you're doing yourself a big disservice by not adapting and getting out there. Yeah. I mean, and that applies to any event. If you, if you live near the mountains and you're going to have a mountainous race, get out of the mountains. If it's going to be a lot of asphalt, train on the concrete, because otherwise you're just not going to be prepared. I'm not saying someone should go out when the heat index is not safe, but you know, right. slowly yeah. start to adapt to the conditions that you're going to race in. And if your race is in a, the fall and it's not going to be hot and humid, well, that's great, but you can still get a lot of adaptations from running in the heat and humidity as far as, you know, improvement with your fitness. So mm -hmm. being comfortable in those uncomfortable places yeah. is really a big, uh, a really big benefit period. Absolutely. And I think that transfers so much, especially into trail and ultra running, because I guarantee you, if you run a hundred miles, you're going to have many points where you're uncomfortable. Oh and Yeah having that mental, you know, like mental toughness equity, having built that, put that in your bank of doing hard things when it would be easier to pick a different route or, you know, bagging a run because you just didn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Those things pay off later on because, you know, you've built up that mental toughness. Now you said you had worked in a shoe store before. So with get recommendations for footwear, that should be specifically case by case person. Absolutely. I'm okay. a big proponent of going to your local running store, getting fit, having them look at your feet, having them trying on different shoes, figuring out kind of the biomechanics, you know, do you supinate? Do you pronate? You know, they can tell you like, well, you're a big heel striker, you know, and they can, you know, they can at least see that. So maybe you're not the candidate for this shoe or that shoe. Do you need a wider toe box? Don't buy a shoe just because it's pretty. You know, I, I, I kid you not true story. So we, I lived in Ohio when I worked at this running store and a guy came in and he went through the whole line of the shoes and we, we, we dialed in exactly what shoe we needed. It felt like a million bucks, but he was from Michigan and the shoe was red and white white, and he would with some gray, with some gray accents. He's like, I cannot wear these shoes. They're all, you know, Ohio yeah, state, Ohio state like, colors. I, I, I will buy these shoes. He flat out would not wear them. Wow. <laughs> I can't do it. And I'm like, but they don't come in. What is it? Maize, maize and blue. Blue. Maze, um, yeah, it's maize not yellow. It's yeah. maize and maize like, and blue. Yeah, yeah. And he would not wear them. And there was no other shoe that worked for him. Like he's like, these are amazing, but I, I just can't buy. Them. Wow. So, eh, I'm not that person. I'll buy <laughs> if it's the ugliest pair and they're the best ones for me. I'll wear them. I mean, you've probably seen some of my shoes. It's like, ooh. But uh, <laughs> so, what do you think about barefoot running or like you know running in minimalist shoes? Is this something that? You know, you hear about how training barefoot is good for you and maybe yeah. run it, running here and there barefoot is good for you. you. Do you think this is something that people should strive for? I think I it's mean, some, not, not ultimately like to run all the time like that, but yeah, you know. I think going out on a, a grassy field or your yard that's safe from debris and doing mm. like barefoot strides in the grass or the sand is fantastic for foot strength. And also that proprioception and, and being able, it does teach you to land correctly because when you don't have a heel on your shoe, you're not going to heel strike. Mm -hmm. So I shouldn't say correctly. It teaches you to run more midfoot, whether mm -hmm. that's correct or not is up for debate, depending on the, the, depending the on who you talk to, yeah, yeah, depending yeah. On who you talk to, but it does get you to kind of land more right underneath you and get that softer foot turnover and that softer lighting on the ground that, that boom, 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 that people tend to get. So I'm a big proponent of that. I do that. Make sure it's like, clean park. Don't go to a park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, Be careful. Yeah. But I, I know people that run barefoot. I know people that run in like the minimal sandals and who am I to say if it works for them and they have great success with it, who am I to say that it doesn't work? I think anybody interested in that Avenue should proceed cautiously, but just like any other major change they would do to your training, incorporating anything new that is going to put a different stress on your body. You know, don't go from zero. It's like people that went from zero to 10 miles in their Vibrams. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. And yep. then they're getting stress. They're getting stress fractures and Achilles tendonitis because right. they hadn't, they hadn't prepped the body for it. So there's ways to, if that's something someone really wants to do, then there's ways to make your feet stronger and to slowly adapt to that. But it's not going to be an overnight thing. Yeah. I thought that that suit against Vibram was very interesting when it took place. Yeah. You know, the, the plaintiff in the case, she talked about how I bought these Vibrams and then I just continued to run the same distances that I had with the my regular running shoes. And I'm thinking, yeah. and you wonder why you had injuries. It, it's, yeah. it's not the shoe's fault or the Vibram's fault. I mean, it's that common sense thing. It's like the people that get the hot coffee and put it between their legs at McDonald's and then crush the cup and burn their crotch. Yeah. Like co- so- coffee's hot. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So there's just some, there's some places you don't want to put hot coffee. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and especially when I think Vibram specifically, if I remember correctly, told people to ease into it, or at least we were, Mm -hmm. I was telling people to, you know, we didn't sell them at my running store, but I'd have people coming to, you know, personal training sessions that would show up with them. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. you need to proceed very slowly with these. If you're running six miles right now in your new balance, you're not going to be running six miles in these. So yeah, that was an interesting lawsuit. That was like, yeah. what was like 10 years ago, almost about uh, that? something like that. It was because I had just started as was, was, I had just been about a year or two into wearing them. Okay. But when I started wearing them, I went three months before I even ran in them. Yeah. And my first run was all of one minute. Like yeah, I literally and- set the timer for one minute and that was it. And people are like, you took three. And I'm like, yeah, because I understood adaptation and what I was doing. I wore Nikes for oh, years, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I understand, like, my feet need time to oh. adapt to what the difference is going to be. All those tissues, your, you know, just your fascia and your ligaments and your tendons, they're not prepared for that kind of pounding. And Well, because well, yeah. what was interesting is my calves have always been, like, bodybuilder style right? yeah like, yeah right i've seen but, your calves in person i can right? attest so, to this yeah so <laughs> little animals in there what was interesting was the first day i wore my vibrams i was i walked around them for an hour or two the next day my calves were so sore isn't that crazy and that's when i just went like yeah. oh my god i yeah. cannot believe i'm getting this feedback yeah on a muscle area that i figured it's pretty well We're developed. Good, like, right? Yeah. <laughs> Look at these babies. They're doing their job. <laughs> and yeah. then the next day, I'm just all like, holy crap. I took my first steps. I'm like, what in the hell? Yeah. Yeah. It was mind blowing. And that's what people were doing, but then they weren't backing off. And then all of a yeah. sudden, they were getting Achilles tendonitis and calf strains and stress fractures. And, mm-hmm. and then it's the shoes fall. And it's like, no, you didn't allow your body time to adapt to right? this difference. You know, New so, stimulus, less volume. Yes. You've got to add a prop progression, progression. proper progression. Yeah, uh, dosage patience. is such patience. Patience. Yeah, which that's people really what it comes down to. Don't want to take three months to adapt to a shoe. Yeah. they want it yesterday or next week at the very latest. Yeah, that's so. a big. Yeah, patience is a big thing that I, it's I really think, missing. I and I do, and I and I I think that's one thing that ultra running has personally taught me is that you have to be patient because you're not mm. going to be able to get ready to do hundred miles in a month. You know, mm-hmm. you can kind of, if you've got a basic fit, you know, a, a level of fitness, weekend warrior fitness, you can do a half marathon pretty quickly, ha- you mm-hmm. know, 10 K you can go out there and get through that and you won't die. But hundred miler, it takes some commitment and it's eating away at it in small doses and building that volume over time. Yeah. And so it's, you just have to be patient. Well, yeah, you can't, I mean, just doing anything for 25 hours straight is incredible. I don't normally stay up for 25. I mean, that's could you watch movies for 25 hours straight. Could you? Oh, your eyes would. Yeah. yeah, Even if you you wanted to watch movies for 25 hours, your eyes would be like, I'm doing that on the trail. (laughs) (laughs) Are you really? Yeah. Yeah. You struggle to keep I'm an early to bed, early to rise. So I'm a total lark. 3.30 wake up is no problem for me. But by seven at night, I am. Oh yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. good luck. Oh God. It just died oh, a little geez. inside. Four thir- <laughs> we wake up at five 30 on Saturdays and Sundays. Like what? that's just, ping! I'm up. Yep. 
No alarm necessary. I and I'm like slept in. Um, but I'm in bed. That's why if you ever message me or somebody emails me after like 7:30, you may not get a response because I'm probably asleep. Yeah, yeah. You know, eight uh, o'clock is pushing it. I'm getting a little wild now with the summer and the longer days, you know, being back in America. Yes, but I also have really bad depth perception and night vision. So it's oh. really hard for me at some of the night portions. Like daytime, as soon as the sun goes down, like yeah, it's a struggle. But so what I'm are you allowed it. to wear, you know, when it's at nighttime, you can wear a little head can, not a head cam, but a headlight. Yeah. Head <laughs> <laughs> yes. Can you wear something on your chest? Yep. I don't okay. know of any races that have restrictions on things like that. Some races won't allow you to use like poles, like trekking poles. Okay. It's very common in Europe because the terrain pretty much necessitates it. Oh. Um, some races don't allow them in the States, but as far as like gear headlamps there's brands that do like a waist pack where it fits kind of like a sexy fanny pack with a light on it basically stash snacks i know i had you a fanny pack and then (laughs) there is also a brand that sells like their strips of lights that you can like mag their magnets and you can affix onto your vest or anything and they're really really bright or flashlights too usually a, a combination it's pretty helpful. You look pretty wild out there with all your neon running colors and your lights. <laughs> Not yeah, sending any fashion statements. Some, yeah, no, yeah. Some night vision goggles or something. <laughs> Ooh, I think That'd that might be cool. considered an unfair advantage. Oh, okay. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, is it? Oh, I don't it is? know. No, no, oh, no. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if anybody's even breached, broached Has that Has anybody topic. even tried to try that? I don't know. That'd be interesting. I don't know. I don't even know how expensive those would be. That, I don't, I think oh, they're actually not that expensive. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, they're actually boy. not. There you go. You heard it here first, folks. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I want to say there. You can get a pair typically in the five hundred dollar range. Oh, well, considering most runners, their GPSs are five, six, seven hundred dollars. Are they really spending that much on that? Wow, this one oh. was. Yeah. Oh damn! And it's like as big. Yeah. It's like a. It's like a. It's like a plate you could eat off of this thing. It's so big. It's yeah, like weighs my like, arm down. It's like my watch, man. It's like a, my, one of my clients calls it a sundial. Yeah, yeah. My husband's like, is that necessary? He runs with an old Timex Ironman watch. He doesn't do GPS. Okay. So he's just like, I have a start and I have a stop. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, satellites, satellites. Uh, you know? uh, that's funny. Now, as far as fueling yourself, let's say be f- building up to as far as strength training, when you're doing your strength training and you're working up to doing your, your distance run, is there specific as far as protein intake, carbs, that type of thing? Yeah. So after lifting, I always do your, you know, traditional kind of protein and carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. I like to have something pre run. I can, I'm not an advocate of fasted running in general, um, especially like long runs. I'm shorter runs, 60, 70 minutes. If you wake up, have a cup of coffee. I'm not talking true intermittent fasting. fasting. Okay. You wouldn't have the coffee. Um, I'm also not a fan of that either for runners personally, but people do do it and they do it successfully. But again, you really have to train for that. A gentleman, I think last year during COVID did a hundred mile or completely fasted. Oh, yeah. Damn. He feel, but he trained his body for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, the, this yeah. isn't like I woke up one day and I mean, he had trained himself to be, you know, the, the fat adaptive athlete is yes. most people don't know how to approach that. Don't do it correctly and and then it's like the why doing it yeah. for most people okay. is it necessary is it necessary is it, yeah so for me I, I like carbohydrates i like food so okay. <laughs> you just look at me and my face like <laughs> she likes to eat that girl likes to eat um so i fueling during runs ultra runnings you combination of liquid calories gels goos and then whole foods things like that so i like to train my system to be able to tolerate it's training your gut to tolerate almost anything so I have a pretty good stomach. Well, because I think that's what's interesting is watching the documentaries on distance on the long distance runs yep. is because they're taking your body weight measurements mm-hmm. uh, at certain periods. And if you lose what more than 24% of your body mass, you're out. It's always oh, less I've than seen. that. Oh, it's oh, less, it's than, less that. than that. And, and they're usually mostly measuring for water content to see if you're overly dehydrated. Gotcha. So, yeah. So, and especially not all races do that. Some hundreds do, some don't, but some will do a pre, like the day before the race, you have to weigh in, feel kind of like a boxer. It's kind of fun. Mm. And then they weigh you at different aid stations to, to make sure that you're getting the appropriate amount of fluid. Cause if you get dehydrated, that can go sideways pretty quick and it doesn't take much to get dehydrated. Is that just based off a percentage of body weight? Yeah. They, yeah. So that? if you weigh, you know, or up or down, cause sometimes over 
consumption and hypnotrenia, you're drinking too much water, not enough electrolyte balance. That can be just as, if not more dangerous for certain people because your people kind of swung from, you know, oh, I'm dehydrated to then over drinking and not balancing with the right amount of sodium and electrolytes. And then they're too much fluid. And so they have those problems. So yeah, it's, so if you weighed in at 150 and suddenly you're, you know, 138, that's, that's a problem, <laughs> you know, on the course, yeah. or if you've gone up, if you've ballooned up, that could be cause for like, you know, what's going on. It could be like, oh, I forgot to take my pack off when you weighed me. Type uh, of thing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That type of thing. But yeah. And not all races do that. The big ones, Western States will do it. They're very famous for that. They collect a lot of health data at that race, which is awesome for studying yeah, I think, to runners. Yeah. I think that's the one Brie runs. She, yeah. I think she's done the Western States. It's this weekend. Plus, yeah. Plus that she's done the Tahoe Rim Trail. Yep, yeah. Tahoe. Mm-hmm. That's a biggie. That, that's the one I think she won. Twice, yeah, that's the one right? she's won twice. Did she do the hundred there? She did the 100. yeah. She did 100. the hundred. Nice. Yeah. yeah, that's a uh, July. That's next month. Yeah. So, so that's yeah. the one she's done before. I don't even know if she's still competitively running though. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, that was years ago. Yeah, I just think the whole thing is it's interesting because you know in the middle of the run while you're trying to fuel yourself, then I think. Is there a part of that where you don't want to feel too bloat? Like it's really more yeah. experience, huh? And feel and that, exactly. And that's what we kind of refer to as training your gut. So when you're out running, some people can tolerate, you know, there might be a range of taking 200 to 300 calories an hour practice, you know, start with that, like mm-hmm. ultra training. And somebody might be on the low end of that and start to feel sick. And some people might be able to tolerate more on the high end of that. It also comes down to like what you're taking in and also pacing. Generally, a lot of GI issues are for people that are going out too fast. Oh, and yeah, they're oh. running faster than is what is considered a sustainable pace for them. They're not trained, they're not adapted. So they're running every run too hard. Then they're shoving food into their stomach, and the, the stomach's like, I, I can't do this right now, guy, you know? And so then GI issues ensue. Oh. So that's those are the big ones pacing, hydration, electrolyte balance, and just ca- calorie training your body to be able to take in the calories. It's solvable. Yeah. It's just you actually have to work at it. There's a lot of learning curves in this. Then I yeah. mean, as far as yeah. personal, you're gonna you're gonna probably experience a lot of ups and downs just yeah. learning about yourself during oh, all yeah. this. Oh, absolutely, I have. And mm-hmm. also, you know, I tell my athletes like you'll have somebody that'll have a, a you know maybe they'll have an A race and they do a, a tune up race or a race between now and that A race or they'll have a long training run that's kind of like it's like I call it the dress rehearsal for their event. And it, it won't go well, you know, or it won't go the way they wanted. I'm like, but you learned this, 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 and this. You learned that you don't like this much of that nutrition product after a certain amount of time. You learned that those socks didn't work. You learned, you know, so you're always mm. adding to that toolbox and you're always learning and applying it to the next run or race. And they all build on each other. So I think that's exciting because you're always getting better even when things don't go the way you wanted. Right. I think that's kind of life. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Do you keep a pretty, do you keep a uh, regimented documentation of stuff or do you just more just experience and go, okay, don't do that again. Or, uh, you know, For myself? Are, yeah. Are there some runners that like really document, okay, this happened oh, yeah. here and this. Yeah. yeah. So you get a little bit of everything. So you'll get people that and they're like, their training notes will literally break down the run. Like, almost mile by mile. And then some people are like, felt great. Took a crap in the woods at mile 10. Didn't go well. Probably shouldn't eat that thing again. I mean, or foot hurt, foot hurt at the end, felt tired, you know? So you get the the difference personally for myself. I'm pretty dialed in enough to know like, oh, that, you know, oh, that shoe didn't work. I'll give it another, I'll try it one more time. You know, I've done this enough. And I don't say that from a point of like that I can never learn, but I'm Mm -hmm. tuned in enough and dialed in right now that, I can pivot pretty quickly. If something doesn't work, I just change it for the next time and adjust. But I find it's very helpful to have a training log, whether it's online or you get people that have traditional paper training logs and make mm-hmm. notes, you know, especially when you're trying something new, note what shoes you wore, you wore for which runs, you know, when wow. did you get them? How many miles do they have on them? Because sometimes people will come to me and they're like, my shins are killing me. How old are your shoes? Oh, I think I have about 800 miles on them. Oh, that's a lot. Right. So ah, yeah, for most, yeah. <laughs> so Holy then they'll crap. swap out shoes. We're like, my shins feel great. I'm like, <laughs> 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 so you know, but it was, sometimes people get so scared, like, oh my god, I've got this. It's like it can be a simple fix of it's just time to get new shoes. Yeah. And sometimes it's a bigger issue of you've got some imbalance going on, and your gait's a little wonky, or your form, and now you've got an IT band problem. 
So I know in these, in the ultras there, you know, you're on the uphills, you're, you, you, you're typically walking a lot of that, right? And in the really long races. Um, we prefer to call it power hiking. Power hiking. <laughs> <laughs> it's, power hiking. It's, not, it's not walking. Neil. It's not power hiking. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the elites will generally can run. I mean, it depends on the event. There are races. Yeah. Everybody's power hiking. Everybody. Let, you know, there are certain ones where it's like everybody just gears down and power hikes up. And then there are some where, depending on the person and their sustainable pacing and you know what what they can sustain and efficiently, they need to dial down into a power hike or they'll burn themselves out. And mm. so it's just kind of adjusting. But yes, there is a lot of power hiking. So I was wondering, do you ever do like, you know, just just put a pack on and go hike for kind of supplemental yeah. training? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. I will. Absolutely. Sometimes like in North Dakota, that was on my treadmill set it to like 10% where am I my running vest? And I also do have a weight vest that I have okay. used in, you know, various times in my cycle. And then I just also like to hike and walk. So sometimes it's just yeah. nice to go on a long hike, still time on legs. You mm, will be yeah. doing that during an ultra. So it's good to, especially I find for people, it's really important to learn how to toggle between running and hiking. So you're running, you're running, you're running, come to a hill power hike up run down the backside, run. Because otherwise, if people don't ever adjust, they can't move fluidly between them and they're always feeling like off. They don't feel like they're in the right gear. Being able to kind of fluidly go between the gears is really valuable. It's an art, guys. It's an art. Oh, yeah. It is. It is. Uh, I mean, there's... Yeah, we can do the science behind it, but ultimately, I think it just comes down to... there's. We can generally broad scope things and say we can take that broad brush... But there's so much specificity from person to person. And event to event. Yeah. Oh, yeah. To write, yeah. you know, exactly. And so you can get dialed in, just kind of go so micro, you know, you get the mm-hmm. macro and you can just, yeah. and I think that's what makes it so cool. Those subtleties, yeah. Do you work with a lot of just beginner runners too? I do. Yes and no, I should say. So I have in the past, right now, most of my athletes are runners, but they might be attempting their first time at a certain distance. So someone who's done 50 Ks, but has never done a 50 miler or someone who wants to approach their first hundred miler. So they're not a new runner per se, but they're approaching a distance they've never done before. And then I get people that have won races and, you know, it's their 10th hundred and they just want to, what they were doing maybe in the past isn't working for them anymore. So they need an ounce, you know, generally that comes into people that overtrain a lot mm, yeah. and they're learning as they, you know, as we get older and as things happen that you can't run yourself into the ground like you could when you were 20 and you have to start doing things differently, you know. Is it hard to get seasoned runners to think of recovery in a different sense or in a different spectrum? Not once they've experienced what it feels like when they've overtrained. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes yeah, lessons yeah, yeah, are hard yeah. earned. And yeah, it's like yeah. you can tell someone like you're overdoing it, you're you're training too much, you're doing too much, you're trying to do it all, and this will result in X, Y, or Z. Oh, I'm fine. And then something will happen, and then they're like, Oh, maybe mm-hmm. I should get some help, some an yeah. objective point of view that can look yeah. at things and, you know, see the bigger picture. You know, it's one of those things. If something has worked for someone for a very long time, I think it's human nature to be a little bit hesitant to try something different. And then it's only when it's not working anymore that right. people and that and that kind of training for 99% of the population isn't not going to last. It's not sustainable. You get those freaks of nature that can run, you know, every day for a decade in a row and do great and uh, good on them. But uh, most people don't have the time or the lifestyle or the recovery to do oh, that. Yeah. They're not yeah. doing all the other pieces, you know, to balance that out. Yeah. Not everyone's a Dean Carnassus who can just that's keep insane. running and running. Yeah. And exactly. Running. And they're paid to do that and they're yeah, sponsored to do that. Yes, and they have yeah. the best, it's like same with NFL football players. Yes. They have every recovery tool at their disposal. They've got every great coach at their disposal so they can, they can get beat up and recover better then you or I, who are going to go play yeah. football once a week with our local league. It's just right. not going to be the same. So, Yeah, our support system is vastly lacking <laughs> compared to what pro athletes get. It's hard to get people to grasp that understanding, though. It is. I think, too, and I think sometimes social media makes that worse because they see people that maybe aren't presenting the whole picture. And they're like, well, mm-hmm. so-and-so goes and runs 20 miles a day every day six days a week and look how look how great they're doing. And they're they're not necessarily seeing either the extra recovery that person has or the fact that no, they are hurt. 
and they're fudging their numbers mm-hmm. and they're not, things aren't going well, but they put this facade on that things mm-hmm. are great. So that transparency sometimes isn't there. So people compare themselves to something that isn't even there really. Yeah. Cause it's the time and resources that <sighs> the 99% of us don't have access to, mm-hmm. you know, it's number one time, but number yep. two, the fact that, yeah, I mean, it's like you said in the NFL, you got your ATC, you got your strength and conditioning staff, you can have a recovery person, you got your person cooking your food for you, telling yeah. you what you should have and what you shouldn't have. We don't have that. No. So people do the best they can with the information they have. And sometimes yeah. that's for getting it from good sources. Yeah. And sometimes that's getting it from less than quality sources, but they're mm-hmm. doing, at the end of the day, I, I feel like people really are just trying to do the best they can. Sometimes they're just not getting the right information or the mm-hmm. right information for them because it's not specified for them. What works for you won't work for me necessarily and vice yeah. versa. Yeah. Very true. Very true. So uh, what, uh, now that you're back in the States, got anything planned coming up? Anything you're working on? or? <sighs> Just getting settled for now. I've got a couple events I'd like to meet. Not a couple. I have an event I'd maybe like to do this fall. We will see. I'm recovering from a a nerve issue, a nerve damage issue, not related to running. And so I'm just kind of getting back into like getting into a rhythm and working on that. But yeah, just exploring some trails. I might we're gonna retire out to Washington State in a couple of years. And so getting Uh... out there into the mountains as much as I can. And honestly, it's just especially after COVID. It's so nice to be back in the States where I can just hop over to a friend's race on a weekend and help crew or pace or attend certification weekends of events and things that like I wasn't, I literally could not leave Germany in 2020. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Right. We were stuck. Yeah, you were so, stuck. Like you were I mean, everybody in. was stuck and nothing yeah. was happening for anybody, but it just felt very, yeah, we just, yeah. So now like being back is like, I could get in my car and drive you know, anywhere. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I couldn't paddle my way across the Atlantic. (laughs) And so uh, social media, where can people follow you or get a hold of you if you have any questions or anything? Yeah. If they didn't think I was crazy enough, it's a dirty (laughs) runner, D-R-T-Y runner, because I can't spell. Um, (laughs) The I is just so old, you know, Um, at uh, that's Instagram, Twitter, which I'm not as active on. And uh, those are my, my main handles. So, so are you helping a lot of people, you know, that you can't see live and you helping them write programs, even if they live somewhere else in the country or all of my country? athletes are remote. All okay. of my athletes oh, right. right now are remote. Okay. Oh, okay. Yep. Every single person I coach right now, um, nobody is lo- logistically near me. So everybody, right. I've got people in New Zealand, Finland, Australia, uh, Germany, I mean, all over the world. Wow. Yeah. Which is really nice. fun because you yeah, get to that's cool. You get yeah. to see where they're running and have these great conversations and get to know different ways people do things in different areas. I just I love it. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Sarah, thank you for coming on and giving us some great information and some and your experiences. That's fantastic. I think it's something people definitely need to hear. So thank you very much. Oh, you're so Appreciate welcome. It. Thank you guys for having me on. This has been an absolute pleasure. Well, excellent. And to all the listeners out there, until next episode. Be good to each other.